When I came here almost five years ago, I kind of approached a lot of things in, in church life. Of course, this was my first pastorate with kind of a, a cautious eye, careful. Um, because it's amazing how spiritual battles will develop from the smallest things, from the littlest things. There'll be spiritual battles coming. I don't think I was paranoid. Maybe some of you thought I was. I don't know. But I was just trying to be careful because I knew that it is a very precious thing to keep things in the right perspective. And we all need to realize that the adversary will use anything, and I do mean anything, to divide or cause trouble in our lives as well as in our church. If you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 14. We're going to look at uh, two particular stories that happen coincidentally, or sequentially, I should say, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. He is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen, which is something that's completely not in their, in their mind. He has told them clearly three times he's going to the cross, he's going to be arrested, he's told them the whole thing. Three times, very clearly. Probably more than what Mark recorded even. But he's preparing them because they don't know what's coming. That he, and, they, and he's preparing them because they're going to carry the message. They're going to carry the message after he's gone. And he wants them to be ready for this. So he's already purged the betrayer from them during the, the Last Supper meal before, before they actually had the Last Supper. Judas left, so now there's just 11 of them left. And he's told them to trust his words, to remember his words. And now he prepares them for spiritual warfare. He gives them a reason to prepare for it, and then he gives them a way to handle it and deal with it. So let me read this passage, and then we'll, we'll explore the wonderful truths that are in here. Starting with verse 27 of chapter 14. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, even Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you and they all said the same thing then they came to a place called gethsemane and he told his disciples sit here while i pray he took peter james and john with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled he said to them i am deeply grieved to the point of death remain here and stay awake he went a little further fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. 
And they did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Let's pray. Father, your word is faithful. And when you say something's going to happen, it happens. When you decree something to, to come to pass, it comes to pass. But you also see our hearts, and you know that we constantly need to be refined. There are things in our lives, each and every one of us, that we still struggle to not do. Some of the things we struggle to do that we're supposed to. And you show us in this passage how we can continue to fight that battle to the day we got, die. So help us see that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, Jesus warns of a battle ahead and how to fight these battles against the adversary and on, in the end come out a winner. So Jesus shows how they can fight the spiritual forces of evil even when loss may seemingly occur, even when it looks like you're losing. So what does Jesus point out when the enemy is near and seems to have the upper hand? What does he point out to them? Well, he gives them two facts in these two particular scenes, two facts to trust in the life of a spiritual warrior. Battles will come and prayer will win. Battles will come and prayer will win. First of all, we're going to look at the battle part. Jesus says that spiritual battles will come. It's not a matter of if but when. Spiritual battles will come, but the war is won. The war is already won. Let me read verses 27 through 31 for you again. I want you to see this. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, what a hopeful statement. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone else falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. So let me, let me work through this a little bit. Jesus is heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if, you, if you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, on the eastern wall of Jerusalem, where the temple sat and faced east, you would go down a valley across a, a stream. They called it the Kidron Valley because the Kidron Creek ran in there. And up the other side was an olive grove, and still is in some spots. And there was a garden in that olive grove called Gethsemane. It was maybe owned by a private person. I've been in one that they think was actual garden, and the olive trees in there look pretty old. They could probably be 2,000 years old. They're pretty, pretty heinous looking. But that's where he's headed. It's a common spot. It's a place that he went to often to pray. Um, other gospels point that out. And he unloads on the way there, and it was a little bit of a, of a, of a jaunt from where they were having the Lord's Supper to there. He unloads this incredibly shocking news again. Some of you are going to face trial. All of you are going to face trials. All of you will, that very night, experience a spiritual attack on your faith, on your allegiance, and you will fall away. They will all fall away. And he's quoting a passage when he tells them about striking the shepherd. It's from Zechariah 13, 7. This was a prophecy made centuries, about four to five centuries before Jesus even came to earth, that said that was going to happen. 
And now this prophecy is coming true that very night. Who is the I in that verse? I will strike the shepherd. This is sometimes doesn't sit well with us, but I hope you realize that the I in that passage is God. God's going to strike the shepherd. God will allow the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, to be struck. Go see, the plan of redemption started in Genesis chapter 3, and all of the predictions and all of that set in motion is pointing to Jesus having to die for our sins. So God will strike his son, the shepherd. And the sheep, meaning these 11 disciples at this point in time, maybe some others too, but these 11 he's speaking to specifically will run away. They will flee. They will scatter. In essence, they will fall away. They won't stand with Jesus at that moment. Now, as I was reading this a week, I was thinking, what's the difference between falling away and betraying? Judas is going to betray Jesus next Sunday, by the way. Jesus is going to betray Judas. Judas is going to betray Jesus. But what's the difference between betraying and falling away? Well, betrayal, betrayal takes a reprobate heart. It's a heart that's, and that's always the answer, by the way, the heart. When, you, when you're looking at the differences between things, it's always about the heart, you know. So Judas's heart was reprobate. It was evil. He was only about himself. He was only about his advantage. And by God's plan, Judas was actually born to be the son of perdition, the son who would, the man who would betray Jesus Christ. Falling away, though, is kind of just a scandal, just a momentary, redeemable act if your heart is right. And Jesus warns them that they will fall away, that they will just lose heart, lose courage right there in that moment. Because spiritual battles will come, but there is always hope. You see what he says right there? Verse 28, but after I have risen. So you, you read past that real quick and you're like, oh yeah, okay, I know Jesus rises from the dead. That's the only reason we're, we're here, right? We only come to church because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But, but he says this to them, after I have risen. There's hope. There is, and, and Jesus knows he's going to rise. He's going to face the worst kind of torturous death there ever has been invented. And he knows he's going to rise from the dead. And Jesus points out that when it's all over, they will meet him again in Galilee. He will lead them in Galilee. The shepherd will be in front of them again. And Jesus knows that God's plan intends to, and he intends to execute it flawlessly. He knows what the plan is. He knows what's going to happen. And he knows he's going to rise again. He trusts his father. It's a wonderful thought to think that Jesus right here reveals that he knows what the outcome, the end is going to be. It should make us hopeful. So Jesus gives this, this bright ray of hope. You're going to all fall away, but when I rise... But when I rise, I'll join you, you'll join me in Galilee. I mean, it's just a beautiful picture. But they're not focused on that. They're focused on themselves. They're focused on, oh my, what do you mean fall away? I mean, they're just, and then Peter. <laughs> oh, we can always rely on Peter to step it up a notch. He's going to challenge Jesus' prophecy. He takes his, his self-appointed allegiance. I will never fall away. I don't care who falls away. I'm never falling away. I'm never going to deny you. He's bragging. He's boasting. He's throwing the other guys under the bus. Even if these other ten deny you, I will never deny you. 
I like Peter because I'm a lot like him sometimes, sticking my foot in my mouth mostly. But he, he just steps in. And so Jesus gives him a, 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 another level of this whole denial thing, okay? You're going to fall away. It's going to be like you're going to run away, and they do. And all, that's, that's a little preview for next week. They run away, but they all come back eventually. And they become messengers for the gospel. But, but Jesus says, well, Peter, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to deny me three times. And it's going to be recorded, basically. He didn't say that, but it's like, this is going to be recorded because I am now telling you that you specifically are going to deny me. Now, why Peter? I mean, why, why is Peter always seem the guy that's getting the extra treatment, I would call it, the extra special uh, correction? Because he has that attitude that he can do anything. That's his attitude. I can do anything. Nobody's telling me what to do. I can fight anything. I can win with my own ability. But Jesus enlightens him. Oh, no, Peter, by the way, um, your battle is going to be even harder because tonight you're going to deny me not once and fall away and run away. You're going to deny me three times. Three times. Jesus says that even before it's over tonight, which it's almost over, by the way, this is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning when they're actually in the, going to the garden. It could be maybe midnight. It could be closer to that. But most people believe that all of this went on in the wee hours of the morning before sunrise. Peter will deny him. And no, Jesus is not picking on Peter. Peter sort of invites it almost. He's not picking on Peter. He's refining Peter. He's making Peter better. Matter of fact, in, in Luke's account of this, Jesus tells Peter to his face, Satan has asked to sift you, to, to challenge you, to test you. And it's going to happen. I mean, that, that's in Luke, and, and that's in the same situation. Because, see, Peter's a natural leader, but he's not a spiritual leader yet. He's a natural leader. Sometimes in the wrong directions, probably. Many times stubbing his own toe. But he's not that spiritual leader that he will become. Jesus is going to make him one. Jesus is going to make him one. But Peter even takes it up another notch. After Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, Peter says, one more time, oh no, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. I mean, he just can't let it go. And Jesus said nothing about him dying for him. But Peter takes it up a notch again. Because Peter is ready to fight. Peter is ready to act. Peter is ready and will draw a sword. Peter is ready for all this action. But he's not ready to humbly face his own frailty, his own failings. Because he will fail. He's not ready to face spiritual warfare. And the other disciples, you notice that he says, oh, and we said this, they said the same thing. Well, you notice Jesus doesn't single any of them out because they're just parroting Peter. They're just echoing Peter. Well, if Peter says so, then I can say so. You know, it's, it's all about pride. But Jesus wants to make Peter better. He wants to make Peter stronger in his faith. He wants him to be more faithful. So he needs him to get rid of, of that very dangerous pride that Peter has. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. And if you know anything about Peter after Pentecost, you know it happened. 
Peter became a very strong and faithful and spiritually sensitive leader. Jesus is telling them spiritual warfare, spiritual battles, spiritual tests, spiritual temptations will come. But the war is already won. When Jesus says, after I have risen, that's an exclamation point on the victory has happened. The war is already won. He will rise and he will lead them like a shepherd into Galilee where they're all from. I think the only one that was probably from Jerusalem or south was Judas Iscariot. The rest of them were from the Galilee region. He's, we're going home, boys. When I rise from the dead, I'll lead you home. Jesus is telling them that the spiritual warfare is going to happen. But the battle is already, the war is already won. You know, in military training or in athletic training or in vocational training or in some sort of education, you're all preparing we're all preparing, and it's intended to prepare us for the hard tasks that we may do in those particular trials. And, and, and it's, it, it co tries to cover every possible scenario, especially in military flying. It was always like, what if this happens? What's the, what if that happens? It was a lesson in what ifs. But some of these things that you'll face after going through the training, some of these things you'll face, you will lose at, or it'll be poorly executed. Or it'll be mistakes that you'll make, failures that even result in despair. But Christ, he promises you this. Spiritual battles will come in many forms, but the war is already won. He rose, the victory is ours, even now. Turn, if you will, into your Bibles into 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see this man who... I'm never going to deny you, but then does deny him. I want you to see what he writes to a church in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 6, 6 through 9. This is, this is the man who was never going to deny Jesus. No matter who denied you, I would even die with you. But this is what Peter said. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. He's speaking from experience. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That sounds like a man who's been through some trials. That sounds like a man who's faced it head on and gotten slapped in the face and beat down. And he did. But now he can say, hey, it's worth it because he rose from the dead. So many times we are caught off guard in our spiritual trials and tests and battles. We flounder around in them sometimes because we're, we're not even looking for them. And yes, we're going to falter. We're going to fail. It happens. But why does this happen? Sometimes it's because we forget that as believers, everything in this life will be and is a spiritual battle. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Satan will use anything he can to fight you. For me, it's mostly traffic, but he's always looking to, to hurt you. 
So here's some examples of, of what happens in our lives. From, from getting up early, you want to get up early and have a quiet time, read your Bible and pray, and something happens. You oversleep, you didn't set your alarm, all those kind of things. Because it's a, a spiritual battle. In your families, we forget to look out for the others. We seek our own kingdoms in our family sometimes. We, we fight over trivial matters. I've heard so many families that have had that, and it lasts too long. In our jobs, we, we compete with our, our interests in mind. We insist on our own welfare at our jobs, and we wind up alienating people and hurting people. And even in our retirement, we get selfish with our time. We get selfish with our resources and our comforts. I retired. I deserve this. I mean, we, we all say these things. In church life, oh my, in church life, the spiritual battles are everywhere from what color chairs to buy to what color paint to put on the wall to, to what music to sing. Sometimes even what version of the Bible you preach from. All of these things I've seen and heard have gotten fought over, dividing God's people. Sometimes these these contentions are with good intentions but the passion just gets the best of us because we want to win and other times our motives may be completely unspiritual we have to watch all that because spiritual warfare is a 24 7 ordeal every day every hour even in your sleep sometimes just ask somebody who has nightmare problems Spiritual warfare is a 24-7, 365 affair. And if we're asleep, it'll be hard for us to fight the fight good. For any of us who call ourselves Christians, sometimes we forget that it's a battle. Sometimes we ignore that it's a battle. So how should we fight these battles? Well, you're going to get tired of hearing me. I'm like a broken record when I, when I come to this point. Remember your Bible. Read your Bible. Read, remember your salvation. Remember the behaviors of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those nine things are, are how we fight the spiritual battles, how we get through them. Read your Bible, pray. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be a broken record because that's what, that's what God's given us, okay? It's not that I'm a broken record. It's that what the Bible says. Spend time in your word. Other things you can do is approach each other like you would want someone to approach you. If someone was approaching you about a problem, you want, you want, you'd want to approach them a certain way. Seek the best interest of others with compromise ready on your lips if you need to. Be ready to, to give in to some things. But there are two things we will never compromise on. I will never give up the fight over the Word of God and the souls of humanity. That's the two things that we will always be concerned about and fighting for. Because we need to remember the main thing. The main thing is the gospel going out. The gospel getting to the world. Like we're going to go down the street here in a little bit and, and commission Emily Petty to take it to Japan. And the main thing for any church is to remember the main thing and then to keep the main thing the main thing. Yes, if you lost track of that, see me afterwards. But the main thing is what we've got to focus on. That's how we fight the spiritual battles. Because the souls of men and the Word of God doesn't care what color the chairs are or the paint on the wall or the carpet or what version of the Bible we use as long as it's a good translation. So we need to remember that it's about God's Word and the souls of men. So Jesus said spiritual warfare is going to happen. It's going to happen. But we win in the end. 
You don't even have to go read the last chapter. You just know. Jesus just told you. But when I'm risen, so, and now he gives his disciples a chance to actually fight a spiritual battle, to fight it correctly. That's where we go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says that when the battles come, fight on your knees in prayer. Let me read verses 32 through 42. Then they came to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And he came, again he came, and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? Enough! The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. So they arrived in the garden. And like I said, it's on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, which is usually several mountain, mounts there that you can see from Jerusalem. It's a garden with olive trees, haha, ha, makes sense, and olive presses, and it's called Gethsemane. Jesus divided his troops for this battle that was coming. He put eight of them at the entrance of the garden. Stay here, stay awake, and in another gospels, he told them to pray. Stay here, stay awake, be alert. He knew Judas was coming with a mob. I think he wanted some warning. So he's putting out his sentries, but mostly he wants them to pray. Then he took three more, Peter, James, and John. James and John are brothers. He took them with him, his little inner circle, his closest disciples. Not because they were anything special, by the way. Jesus just chose them. He, ha he does that with a lot of us. He just chooses you for whatever he's put you in. He goes a little further into the garden and, and puts them down and says, stay here, stay awake, pray. Be on the alert. And he goes a little bit further. One, one version in one of the gospels says he goes a stone's throw away. I've been in that thing they think is a garden. You can throw a stone all the way across it. So I don't know where this is actually taking place. But that's what happened. Stay awake. Pray. Fight the enemy. That's what he's telling them to do. I've just told you to be spiritually and physically alert. And he wants them to see this betrayal happen. He wants them to, to, to sear their, in their minds what happens. But he also wants them to pray over what just, he just told them. I mean, if anyone had a reason to pray right now, it would be these 11. Jesus, the Son of God, tells you, you're going to fall away from me tonight. I mean, if that's not more of a reason to pray, I don't know what you, else you would need. If you don't want that to happen, which they all said they didn't, or we, we won't do that, then they would pray. But they didn't. And then Jesus began to be deeply distressed. And, and he, he was feeling the stress and the pending doom that was coming, that was coming on him. And he went deeper into the garden 
to pray, to talk to his father. And Jesus tells the three, Peter, James, and John, that this grief feels like death. I'm at the point of death, the physical fatigue that burdens his heart. Now, Jesus rarely, and I don't think, I can't find anywhere, he rarely displayed emotions of such intensity in terms of his own grief. I know that he was grieved over his friend Lazarus who died, but this is so much deeper. And he not really ever truly shared that. So what is burdening him? What is causing the problem? Because we know the cross is coming, right? He knows the cross is coming. He's not afraid of that. He's not afraid of that. He knows the trials and, and the sentencing and the flogging and the violence is coming. But Jesus is not afraid of that. That's not what's burdening him. What is it then? Well, Jesus begins to feel the oppression and the agony of God's wrath. God's wrath is coming on him for the sins of the world. God's wrath is, and that's why he uses the term cup. That's a symbol in throughout all of the Old Testament that means God's wrath. And that's what Jesus is praying over. That's what's got him so distressed. He feels the oppression and the agony of God's wrath. And Jesus has never been separated from his father in all of eternity up to this point. Never been separated by anything in all of eternity. And now over the next 12 hours, that will be his battle. He will be separated from his father. He will feel the wrath of God on him for the sins of the world. And Mark kind of summarizes what he prayed for in verse 35. And then he actually records Jesus' words. Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word for father. That's all it is. It means father. Um, some people try to give it a little more intimate meaning, like daddy. But it's really just the same thing as father. And Abba is Aramaic, and father or pater is Greek. And he's saying them both. And we get to say Abba because that's the words Jesus actually used. Abba, Father. It's not, it's, it's not usually used in Jude, Judaism's teachings to use an, that Aramaic word to talk about God the Father. But Jesus uses both. And he's crying out to his dad for help. And he says, all things are possible for you. All things are possible for you. So what does that mean? If it's all things are possible, why can't the cup pass from Jesus? If all things are possible, why can't that happen? Because God cannot deny his character. People will always want to go have an argument with you. What can God, can God make a stone big enough that he can't lift? That's kind of a silly question. It doesn't, it's, a, it's, it's not a good question. But there are things God can't do. He cannot lie. He cannot be unfaithful. He cannot disregard his word. And he cannot allow evil to go unpunished. That's against his character. A holy God. If God loves unconditionally, and he does, if his mercy is everlasting, and it is, if his faithfulness is great, like we just sang about, then he must punish evil. He doesn't have any choice. Would you trust someone who doesn't uphold justice? Would you trust someone who lets 
it slide by, winks at it. Would you trust them? No, I wouldn't. God cannot do that. He must take care of evil. So he decides to punish it. And this is why Jesus had to die. He died instead of us. He died instead of us for our sins. Jesus knows this must happen or all humanity will have no chance at forgiveness or eternal life. Jesus knows this must, has got to happen. But he begs his father if there was even any other way so that he would not have to experience the wrath of Almighty God. Jesus is not afraid of the cross, the flogging, the beatings, the violence, the trials. He is not afraid of that. He is a strong man. He is ready to take that. He does not want to experience the wrath of God on him, even though he's sinless. Please take it away and relieve me of this burden. But, Jesus says, nevertheless, Jesus says, not my will, but yours. Not his human desire to avoid the wrath of God, but God's divine will be carried out. His eternal will be done. And remember and understand this. Jesus is not forced to do this, okay? Some people want to think that God had a gun to Jesus' head, basically, and was forcing him to do this. No. He loves us as much as God loves us. And because he's God and man, he volunteered to do this for us since there was no other way that it could be handled. And Jesus fights this battle on his knees. The creator of the universe on his knees, stumbling in the garden, sweating drops of blood, which he really did. <clears throat> he fought this fight on his knees because his human strength alone could not sustain him through this. He needed his father. And so do his disciples. But <laughs> they were sleeping. They were resting. It was late. It was in the wee hours of the morning. They were giving in to the physical stress instead of watching for the spiritual attacks that were coming, that he had just told them was going to happen. They had an opportunity to pray over that. And Jesus rebukes and he exhorts them to pray and stay awake. You say that you won't fall away. Prove it to me now. Just one hour is all I'm asking. Sweet hour of prayer. Just one hour. Pray with me. But Jesus then points out how our spirits are willing because our spirits are kind of those things that write checks that our bodies can't cash, you know. The spirit is willing. It'll say certain things like Peter said, I will never deny you, but the body can't help it. The human side of us just flails around at it. We are so frail spiritually because of our human body. Our bodily comforts and our desires, they trump out our needs our spiritual needs. Many times, we just can't do it on our own, but he can. That's the beautiful thing here. He can. So Jesus comes the first time, tries to wake him up, give him another shot at it, goes back and he prays. What does he pray for? The exact same thing. He already knows the answer. He prays for the exact same thing. De Jesus is demonstrating a parable he tells about the persistent widow that would just not leave this judge alone and kept bugging him. And the judge was like, I don't care about people or God, but this woman is going to wear me out. So I'm going to give her her justice. Jesus is demonstrating that parable that no matter what we think the answer might be, we continue to talk to God about it. 
He did this two more times. He asked God for help and he surrendered to God's plan regardless of the answer. He prayed that prayer three times. It's an example for us to follow. Because most of us don't have his insight. Most of us don't know what's really coming next. So we can keep praying. Like David, for his son that was born illegitimately, he kept praying that the son would live, but it didn't. But he kept hoping. God may have mercy. We never know. But after the third time of this, after he's come back and twice, he says, it's enough. You have slept enough. You have rested enough. You have recouped your energy enough. Your time is up to pray for this situation that's about to happen. The betrayer is upon them. So he rouses the 11, gets them up, says, get up. It's time to go. We're going to go out and we're going to face this mob. So you read that and you go, well, maybe Jesus wants to get up and run, but he doesn't get out the gate. No, he was getting up to go face his accuser, to face the betrayer. See, Jesus won the war in the end because he fought the battles on his knees. He fought it in prayer. Even the ones he supposedly lost, because most people would look at this and go, well, he still got crucified, so he lost. <laughs> no, he won in a mighty big way. Because he knew that was the ultimate plan. But he went to his father and prayed. He went to his father on his knees. Do you know what Gethsemane means? I may have told you this before. Gethsemane is a Greek word or Hebrew word, I think, Hebrew, that means olive press or press of oils. So it's an olive press and their olive press was like this big giant seesaw thing. They put weights on one end. They put this basket of olives on the other end after they had pulped it into a mulch. And then they, they pressed it. And they used these weights. And they kept increasing the weights. And every batch of olives they pressed three times. Is that a coincidence? Three times they would press that batch of olives. Then they would put another batch of pulp in there and do it three times for that one. And they got different levels and, and purities of oil from the first, second, and third press. I think it's interesting that Jesus went to a garden called Gethsemane and he allowed God to press him three times in prayer. Jesus submitted to God's press three times. He learned obedience to God's will in those three times. That's how you fight the enemy. That's how you fight the spiritual battle. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Because this is what Paul says about fighting the battles that we need to remember. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 and verse 18 I'll read. But you need to read this whole thing and when you've got time. Paul says in verse 10, Finally be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Verse 18, Paul says, Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. No matter what you're you know about the spiritual armor no matter what you think you can handle everything needs to be done with prayer that's how we fight 
That's how we fight the adversary. Prayer, we know we should do it. We really know we should do it. We do trust in it sometimes. We rely on it. And we make it a priority. We know we should do that, but we don't always. We really act many times like these 11 disciples that we know what spiritual war is raging all around, but when we're asleep. We're challenged daily, but we don't watch or pray like we should. And many times we use prayer as kind of a, a short order. We just want to order something from God. We put in our order to God and we go on our merry way. When was the last time you were pressed in prayer? Pressed like olives being squeezed for the oil. When was the last time you were pressed and stressed and grieved to pray for a spiritual victory? Jesus prayed for something he already knew could not happen. But he knew prayer would aid him to bear the grief and the load. And even when the battle is lost in our minds, if we have prayed seriously for aid, for help, we have won by surviving in God. We've won. If you keep praying, even though it doesn't come out the way you want it, or even though you continue, continue to have troubles, you've won if you're asking God to help you. Sometimes it's a prayer of forgiveness, a plea for forgiveness because you've messed up. Even when the battle is lost, we can win by praying. And Jesus tells us to pray persistently for those battles, to get on, get on our knees. He fell to the ground. It, it, some people think he might have bowed down like we do. We get on our knees and we're praying or something. I really think he was physically disabled a second and fell on his knees, on his hands and knees before his father because he was under such a burden. His anguish was great for the souls of humanity. And whether you realize it or not, just like the disciples didn't realize it, we have spiritual battles we need to pray over. We're facing things every day in, in this country, in this culture, in this society, and even in our own hearts. There are things that we need to be pressed over. Are you allowing God, the Holy Spirit, to press you on those matters, to remind you to pray for those matters? Are you sweating drops of blood like Jesus did over something? Our weekly prayer meeting, we try to tackle some of those things and pray over those. Even our prayers and worship are meant to do that. But we all need to be on our knees in our homes, in our prayer closets, praying desperately for the souls of the unforgiven. The spiritual war is won by Christ, but the battles are still coming every day. And we need to fight them on our knees. In summary, Jesus is about to be arrested. Next week we'll talk about that. He's about to be taken away from these 11 men that he spent three years pouring into. But he gave them the most important lesson he could probably give them right there. Pray. Fight the fight in prayer. Not in your own strength, not in your own pride, not in your own abilities like Peter was going to do. Pray. Because our battles will come in very insidious ways. The next thing you know, you're just all stressed out from something because you haven't been praying about it. But we have a weapon. Prayer to the risen Savior because the, the battles are, the war is already won. That's our weapon. Every time. All the time. I said spiritual battles happen 24-7. We need to pray 24-7. Pray without ceasing. 
to Christ. Satan will use everything he can find to divert you and me away from God's truth and God's way. He will. He'll use anything. Anything. We must learn to recognize it and to stand against it. And we can do that by praying. So let's take some time right now to pray that we see the schemes of the adversary and that we act wisely in the face of them, in the face of his spiritual warfare. So this is a time of, of spirit pastoral prayer. If you would want to, you can come to the front and pray. We're going to have a time of silent prayer, and I'll close this out after a couple of minutes. So let's pray.